Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 171 oh my gosh bienvenidos <laughs> bitches and buiti binafi and thank you for listening yeah now fruit loops let me tell you come close tell me about let it let me tell you something fruit loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about contrary to popular belief not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes no what? i'm telling you it's true 171 episodes later <laughs> there are many well-documented <laughs> cases of serial killers of color and fruit loops is a podcast all about them we take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because oh my god you're not gonna believe this the news is racist what allegedly <laughs> yeah i'm telling you we'll get into it and we are wendy and beth she's wendy a black latinx woman and i'm beth and i just happen to be white that's right and it's not her fault no <laughs> it's not my fault and it's not a fault Amen. it just is what it is thank you thank you Yes. Anyway, we're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists, just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. Nine, 
and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Let's check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops Patreon. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about James Cornelius Brown, a.k.a. the Backpage Killer, mm, mm, a mm. black man convicted of killing four women in his home in Sterling Heights, Michigan. He is said to have lured the women to their deaths by using the website Backpage.com. And this story was researched and written by Minnie. That's right. So before we get into it, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, everything's, uh, you know, normal. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, check your pulse. Are you all right over there? Uh, all right. On? There's nothing happening. Nothing okay? to report. No news is good nothing. news. Yep. Yeah. Um, let me check. I try to tell myself that. it's My life's really boring, but you know, at least nothing bad's happening. No, you know what? I'm not on fire. So that's good. That's There's right. that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, everything. You, <laughs> Everything's all right. We're here. Yeah, it's all right. And I can't right. wait to talk about James Brown. But before we yes. do, let's get into yes. some listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Oh, here Thank they come you. with the bag, with the mail <laughs> bag. And they dropped it off to you ever so nicely. What is in that bag, Beth? <laughs> well, we got an email from Laurel. Ah. And she had suggested the story of the bouncing ball killer. That's which right. Which we covered on episode 159. Mm-hmm. And she suggested it because her genealogical research connected him to her family tree. Whoa! Yeah. And she recently found another connection to a serial killer. Oh, my freaking God. I know. <laughs> She's a serial killer magnet. Wow. Uh, <laughs> So his name was Raymond Fernandez and his partner in crime was Martha Beck. And Laurel says their story is kind of the 1940s version of Khalil Wheeler Weaver, who you covered in episode 81. But instead of social media, Hernandez and Beck used Lonely Hearts columns to find victims. Oh, like in the newspaper? Yeah, yeah. That's what they used to do. Yeah. And she's related to one of the victims. And she says one of the best parts of your podcast is where you discuss the factors that go into why the person committed the crimes they did. Both of these killers had contributing factors. Traveling to the U.S. after World War II, Fernandez suffered a severe head injury, which may have contributed to his later actions. Beck had a terrible childhood, including rape by a family member and several bad relationships before she met and became obsessed with Fernandez. Mm. During the trial, the press was brutal in their constant descriptions of her as fat and ugly, which is terrible. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know how that... Who does that serve? <laughs> uh, but Hip Hop Airhorns to Laurel, if I can find them. Oh my God, there's an airhorn thief around here. Just kidding. There he is. Yeah, thanks, Laurel. Thank you, Laurel. Um, well, we have two new Patreons this week Laurel K, the letter we just read. Be Thank the same you. Laurel, yeah. And uh, Connie S. I think. Connie actually is a patron from way back. And yeah. She must be leveling up. She's a returning champion. A returning yeah. champion. Yeah. All right. Yes. <laughs> so here are your tunes, y'all. Okay. Sunday morning, Laurel's calling. 
That may be all I need. In darkness, we got fruities. Come and hide some bones with me. <laughs> Every week we're Patreoning, and I never want to leave. Thanks, Laurel. <laughs> Where is my damn Aaron? Thank you. And Connie, because you're a returning champ, I can't remember what tunes Connie's had or not. Um, I should really keep track of these things. But anyway, Connie, this is for you. The best part of waking up is Connie in your cup. <laughs> oh, I hope you like that. Awesome. <laughs> well, those are your tunes. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to get into the story when we come back. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. Ah! That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. We're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about James Brown, a.k.a. the Backpage Killer. Wait, James Brown? I get up, uh, get on up. I get up, get on up, stay on the scene, get on up like a murder machine. Oh, wait a minute. No, it wrong, wrong. Yeah, no, no, James no, no. This is a, a different, much less funkalicious James Brown. Oh, me, oh, my. Okay, wow. This is James C. Brown, aka the Backpage Killer. Ah. 
C as in C. see ya. I don't want to meet ya. <laughs> not one James bit. James C. Brown. See, you're not as good as the real James Brown. Do you see that? Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Let's just call him C. Okay. That way there'll be no confusion with the king of funk, the real James Brown, a.k.a. the hardest working man in show business. That's what they say. A.k.a. the godfather of soul, a.k.a. Hello. Mr. Dynamite, okay. a.k.a. soul brother number wow. one. Nope, we are not talking no, about we're not. any of those. But those air horns were for my love of James Brown's music. <laughs> yes. uh, it, uh, the whole time I was researching this one, I just also kept going back to videos of James Brown dancing <laughs> yeah. and performing. Oh my God, what fun. So now we're going to get into the stats. All right. All right. So James C. Brown, or just C, is a.k.a. the Backpage Killer, a.k.a. Mookie, and a.k.a. the Gentle Giant. Um, so gentle. <laughs> no. Why do they always call big killers the Gentle Giant? That, I think, is a really good question, because <laughs> I am scratching my head about the same thing. He killed people. Uh, so uh, so uh, his victims are Rest in Power Queens, Natasha Curtis, 29, Demisha Hunt, 24, Renee Nisha Landers, 23, Vernithia McCrary, 28. All of them were black women. Um, and actually, Demisha and Renisha were cousins. Um, yeah. All four of the ladies were absolutely beautiful. Beautiful. Um, I encourage everybody, if you can um, look up pictures of them or their stories, look into it. Um, but rest yeah. in power to those beautiful queens who were killed and also thoughts and prayers to the loved ones and community left in the wake of this horrible sea individual. Yes, now yes. we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the bodies were found in Detroit, Michigan. Michigan, though the murders actually happened in Sterling Heights, Michigan, mm. a suburb of Detroit in December 2011. We've talked about Michigan and Detroit before in other episodes, but it's worth reminding everyone that the land where what we now call Michigan and Detroit now sit were originally inhabited by other peoples. That's right. When the first European explorers exploded like a giant sack of rotten potatoes, spreading its gelatinous stink <laughs> Across the land of the area, you know, like in Stranger Things season three, yeah. where that that blob is like taking over people. It's like that. That's what colonialism's like. So um, I like that better than arrived, Minnie. Good one. Yeah. Uh, the most populous <laughs> residents were the Algonquin peoples, who include the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi. The three nations coexisted as part of a loose confederation called the Council of Three Fires. The Ojibwe, whose numbers are estimated to have been between 25 and 35,000, were the largest. Then followed the usual sequence of violence combined with lies to take land from these people and redistribute it to the colonizers. I was going to say, there's this land back movement, and oh, yeah. they took the land so easily and redistributed it quite easily. Couldn't they just do it again? Nope. <laughs> no? Huh. <laughs> uh, the colonizing population grew slowly in the territory of Michigan until the opening in 1825 of the Erie Canal through the Mohawk Valley in New York, connecting the Great Lakes to the Hudson River and New York City. The new route attracted a large influx of settlers who worked as farmers, lumbermen, shipbuilders, and merchants, and shipped out grain, lumber, and iron ore. 
By the 1830s, Michigan had 80,000 residents, more than enough to apply and qualify for statehood. Yay! Its position on the canals made it a great place to develop manufacturing businesses, drawing immigration during the Great Migration, and the auto industry setting up shop in the area, drawing yet more immigration during the Second Great Migration. Detroit itself is the largest city in Michigan, as well as the largest U.S. city on the United States-Canada border. Wow! The city of Detroit had a population of approximately 639,000 at the 2020 census, making it the 27th most populous city in the United States. Wow. Yeah, wow. Uh, Why? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. How'd that happen? Wow, yeah. So the, the metropolitan area known as Metro Detroit is home to 4.3 million people, making it the second largest in the Midwest after the Chicago Whoa. metro area. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that I had no idea. And the 14 largest in the United States. Wow. You know, Detroit is cold, y'all. Wow. Yeah. I mean, how do you do it? That's all I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Regarded as a major cultural center, Detroit is known for its contributions to music, art, architecture, and design, in addition to its historical automotive background. Time named Detroit as one of the 50 world's greatest places of 2022 to explore. Wow. Yeah, no, Detroit is making a comeback, and there's a lot of black and brown people who are taking advantage of the ability to own land and property and build wealth. So it's kind of cool to right. see Detroit I was, see it was coming, back. coming back. It was it was sad. Um, yeah. So there is one other thing that Detroit is known for, which doesn't actually get discussed that much. Uh oh, that thing is fire so much fire (laughs) fire seems to be a recurring theme in detroit for more than 30 years quote devil's night end quote devil's night fires on the night before halloween whoa numbered in the hundreds peaking at around 800 in the mid 1980s what (laughs) so did you ever hear of devil's night before no okay so that (laughs) <laughs> they they did this on the East Coast. I, I don't know. Check and see if they do it in Georgia this year. I don't know. Devil's but, um, night. I'm going to have to look this th- It was a night for pranks. Okay. Like the, the night before Halloween okay. was Devil's Night and kids would go out and pull pranks, but it got out of hand. And a lot of times kids would set fires. And I guess it was particularly bad in Detroit. I don't know. Oh, dang. No, this is something I've never heard of. I wonder if... Never heard of. Yeah. It's something old Whitey and his brothers might have done. (laughs) The West Coast didn't have it because we lived in California. And it wasn't... I never heard of it until we moved to the East Coast. Interesting. Devil's Night. It sounds wild they don't and do it here I don't want any in Arizona. part of it I don't yeah know. I didn't I didn't like it I did not like it <laughs> they're like dragging Beth along she's, she's yeah, just holding no. the toilet paper roll and the fireworks in her hands like I don't want to be here no I don't like this <laughs> oh goodness me where are we <laughs> oh but Detroit has suffered from fire damage since its early history following the American Revolutionary War and the establishment of the United States as an independent country, Britain ceded Detroit along with other territories in the area under the Jay Treaty of 1796, which established the northern border with its colony of Canada. It's just so w- wild to me. These borders that colonizers just decide ex- yeah. to exist. And then we all right. have to acquiesce. 
That's a big word yes. I learned this week on MSNBC. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, in 1805, a fire destroyed most of the Detroit settlement, the buildings of which were mostly wood. One stone fort, a river warehouse, and brick chimneys of former wooden homes were the sole structures to survive. Of the 600 Detroit residents in the area, none died in the fire. Wow. Well, that's good news. Yeah. <laughs> By 1940, 80% of Detroit deeds contained restrictive covenants prohibiting black people from buying houses they could afford. These discriminatory tactics were successful, and the majority of black people in Detroit found themselves restricted to living in all black neighborhoods, such as Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, which is funny because Paradise Valley in Arizona is like hoity toity, richy yeah, rich. Yeah. You won't catch me out there. Anyway, no, at, no. This t- at this time, white people still made up about 90% of the city's population. However, from the 1940s to the 1970s, during the second Great Migration, the Black population surged in Detroit. Um, they only say that when it's Black and Brown populations. This is just a cultural oh. corner. So, like, they refer to a surge at the border of Brown people, but it wasn't oh, a surge right. when they were coming from Ukraine. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, um, yeah. the Black okay, population so grew, grew tremendously in Detroit, but Black people were excluded from many opportunities in Detroit through violence and policies which perpetuated economic discrimination like redlining. Ever heard of it? Mm -hmm. Listen to past episodes. Anyway, white residents also attacked black people's homes, breaking windows, starting fires and detonating bombs. Good Lord, y'all. What is wrong with these white people? Also, um, a similar thing happened um, all across the country, but insurance companies made it really difficult for black people to make claims on on these types of vandalisms. The more you learn, the more infuriating it it is. It sounds really bad. (laughs) Yeah. Not only that, but even though the city's black population was increasing, Detroit's police force, fire department, and other city jobs continued to be held predominantly by white people. Mm. This created an unbalanced racial power dynamic. Certain fires were to be attended to swiftly, Hmm. and certain others were not. And uh, Mm. I wonder which ones. Hmm. What a puzzle. Well, we're not investigators, so who's to say, right? Who's what do we say? know? <laughs> Just what do kidding. we know? Yeah, yeah, yeah we know. <laughs> it was the black yeah. ones. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so, oh boy, oh boy. So this era of intolerance made it almost impossible for black people to be successful. Without access to proper housing or the economic stability to maintain their homes, the conditions of many neighborhoods began to decline. In 1948, the landmark Supreme Court case of Shelley versus Kramer outlawed restrictive covenants. And while racism in housing did not disappear, it allowed affluent Black families to begin moving to traditionally white neighborhoods. But then, of course, the white folks ran in fear Mm -hmm. and moved out of the city. Mm. By 1950, much of the city's white population had fled to the suburbs. The stage was set for future unrest. The 1967 Detroit Riot, also known as the 12th Street Riot or Detroit Rebellion, was the bloodiest of the urban riots in the United States during the long, hot summer of 1967. And I just wanted to shout out the movie Detroit starring John Mm -hmm. Boyega. I highly recommend it. You can feel the tension as soon as you hit play on your remote. Um, Just to give you it's just to give you a sense of that period in time and the tension going on my watch. list. Yeah, I highly recommend it. Sorry to tangent. No problem. 
Composed mainly of confrontations between Black residents and the Detroit Police Department, it began in the early morning hours of Sunday, July 23, 1967, following a police raid on an unlicensed after-hours bar. Hundreds of fires were set during the riots, which resulted in 43 deaths, about 1,200 injured, over 7,200 arrests, and more than 400 buildings destroyed. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like they need to call the National Guard. That's insane. Wow. Yeah. Um, And I think they might have. Anyway, uh, as the auto industry declined, people began to move away from Detroit and its suburbs, leaving these areas even less protected and cared for than they had been in the past. Numerous homes were left abandoned in the early 2000s during the decline of the auto industry and the recession and housing bubble burst. Those with homes there who wanted to leave found themselves unable to sell their houses and fires more frequently popped up in these areas, Mm. sometimes because a chance at an insurance payout would be better than nothing or because empty houses are just vulnerable to vandalism. Who's to say? Oh, wait, there's fire investigators involved. They'll say. So according to fire (laughs) investigators, people got tired of having abandoned buildings blithing their neighborhood so they would torch them. Or sometimes people with nothing better to do than look for some dangerous fun or maybe just a need to vent some kind of overwhelming feelings. (laughs) That's an interesting way to put it. Overwhelming feelings tossed Molotov cocktails at the abandoned buildings in drive-by arsons. Wow. In the year 2000 alone, there were 5,100 fires set within the city of Detroit and its suburbs. Wow. Yeah. And uh, this is from Minnie. She says, I kind of understand those feelings of needing to vent against your own environment. I can't remember if Beth talked about this before, but the small town we lived in in Connecticut had its own frustrations. Mm. There was very little for young people to do outside of church functions or school supported gatherings like sports (laughs) or very (laughs) infrequent dances. Oh, no. So young people used to find fun by going out and engaging in minor vandalism, like stealing road signs, stealing stop signs, throwing eggs, toilet papering houses, smashing mailboxes, things like that. You lived in the purge? (laughs) (laughs) In fact, the mailbox at our house was so frequently smashed that our dad kept a couple of spare mailboxes in the garage. When one got smashed, he'd bring out the next one to replace it while he worked the dents out of the smashed button. And this is true. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) He kept the third one in case the second one got smashed while the first one was still being repaired. Wow. That is really something. (laughs) There's more. Okay. There was one time when the mailbox vandals got super creative and they stole the mailbox instead of just smashing it. It showed back up on our lawn some days later with holes drilled in it, spray painted a variety of colors and dented as well. Wow. (laughs) Um, Isn't that a federal crime? Uh, Probably, but... (laughs) It was the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) It was. So dad went ahead and fixed the dents and put it back up, spray paint holes and all. Wow. (laughs) I don't know how others in the family felt about it at the time, but I actually thought it was pretty hilarious. I think it's rad. Yeah. Me, Beth, I was proud. (laughs) I think that is so cool. And the character that that mailbox must have had. Oh, my God. I love it. (laughs) I don't think we ever found out who the culprit was. We didn't. Yeah. But I've got to hand it to them for their persistence and creativity. It was probably someone we knew, someone we went to school with, likely. Mm. Honestly, it's not that much of a stretch going from something like that to setting fires, especially if you grew up in a community where fires were just a daily part of life, like how things had become in Detroit. Yeah. 
Uh, well, Minnie and Beth, your childhood is so fascinating to me. I just, I love hearing about it. So thank you very much for that story. But Minnie's right. If you know, um, sounds like there was a lot of factors at play in the fires, including yeah. you know, idle hands, lack of opportunity, you know, um. Just hopelessness, frustration, all those things. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So during the time of the murders that we're going to discuss in this episode, fire department budgets had already been cut and fires were getting out of control. They were working with way fewer firefighters than they needed. And the majority of the fires were not able to be investigated as they simply did not have enough investigators to look into them all. In 2011, the city had started implementing a policy called Let It Burn, in which certain fires determined not to be a danger to their surroundings or to be life-threatening would simply be allowed to burn themselves out because there just weren't enough firefighters and their skills were needed for more life-threatening fires. Mm. Now, according to a Reuters article, by 2013, fire departments could only investigate about one out of every five suspicious fire cases. Wow. And the majority of the Detroit fires were suspicious. There were more than 80,000 abandoned buildings spread across 139 square miles in Detroit and its suburbs. That's vast. Wow. Yeah. By this time, arson had very negatively affected the city's social fabric. Property values had plummeted, neighborhood cores had burned out, and the residents had fled at alarming rates. Detroit's population decline in the decade prior to 2013 was steeper than in any other major American city. Wow. People had no sense of community and they felt unsafe. And it's uh, difficult to imagine growing up with all of that going on, but this was the social climate in which today's subject grew up up in a city in which there was so much pervasive hopelessness that people were burning down their own city. Now, um, a little bit of culture corner before we dive into um, details about this case is I feel like we have to talk about the oldest profession known to humankind and the Wild West of the Internet. Um, Now, Backpage is kind of like Craigslist. It was a classified ad company online, and they sold everything from childcare to auto parts, um, personal ads, and it became the largest online classified site in the United States at the time. And there was pressure from lawmakers who were like, oh, no, sex work on the Internet. And they shut it down. So Craigslist was shut down first, and then everything funneled over to Backpage. Um, And Backpage eventually was taken down in 2018, and a bunch of people were charged with prostitution. Um, And Backpage and Craigslist, from interviews I've heard with sex workers at the time this happened of the shutdown, some of them were upset because the Internet allowed them to operate in a way that gave them a little bit more control and some semblance of safety. And on Backpage had, you know, sex workers had the ability to post about problematic Johns and customers and screen clients. And so when they shut that down, that went away. Yeah. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. 
We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. So now we are going to get into the early life of C, James C. (laughs) Brown. What do you got, Beth? So James Cornelius Brown was born on April 8th, 1988. So he was an Aries. Oh, that red flag. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Although, you know, I'm an Aries. -uh. (laughs) Nuh-uh. Yeah. But I'm on the cusp of Pisces and I think I'm more of a Pisces. You, uh, every Aries I've known has had a very bad temper. (laughs) I mean, I'm so surprised that you are that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I I really don't think I fall into the Aries. I think I'm more of a Pisces. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll accept it. Fascinating. (laughs) Yes. So C grew up in a neighborhood near Interstate 94 and Outer Drive in Detroit, Michigan, where there are now lots of abandoned or burnt out houses and empty lots that used to have houses. He spent his childhood there before moving with his mother, Shirley, to Sterling Heights, a suburb that is a bit north of the Detroit city center. James graduated from Stevenson High School in Sterling Heights in 2007. After graduation, he continued living in the basement of his mom's house in Sterling Heights, Michigan, near 18 Mile and Mound Roads. 18 Mile, huh? Hmm, I wonder how far 18 Mile is from 8 Mile. Uh, Zinga! <laughs> I'm thinking um, 10 miles? Whammo! <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean 8 Mile, as in the movie with Eminem and Brittany Murphy. Brief culture corner, the movie 8 Mile is named after an actual road in Detroit, the D. Now, uh, the road is seen as sort of a cultural divide line between the predominantly black neighborhoods to the south and its wealthier predominantly white northern suburbs. The perception of 8 Mile as the chief dividing line between racial groups and classes persists in part because of the suburban counties of Oakland and Macomb um, remain on the whole significantly whiter and more wealthy than the city of Detroit. However, in recent years increasing numbers of white people have moved into Detroit, especially around the downtown area, um, and other neighborhoods in the region have become more ethnically diverse as well. Eight Mile Road is also known as Baseline Road because it was used to set the baseline for the public land survey system in Michigan. Ah. Today, that is kind of neat. Today, the baseline forms the northern or southern boundary of many southern Michigan counties. And that's it for Culture Corner with Beth, Wendy, and Minnie. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Sterling Heights, where C lived with his mom, is north of Eight Mile Road in a more suburban area, farther away from the city center of Detroit and the predominantly black neighborhoods where he grew up. Um, I was just going to say, for parents in James Brown's generation, it meant a lot for our parents to have us live and go to school in white spaces. In the suburbs. And, or, yeah, yeah, in the suburbs. And it yeah. fucked us up. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it, it It probably seemed like success. Yeah, exactly. Um, then it fucked you all up. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I haven't killed anyone. Anyway, there was already a small village named Sterling in Arnesack County. So when Sterling Heights was incorporated as a city in 1968, the word Heights, of course, was added to the township name to satisfy a state law that prevents incorporated municipalities from having the same name. It also makes it sound fancy. I'm so <laughs> fancy. <laughs> you already know I'm in Michigan. Go, whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> in the 1960s and 70s, many residents came to live in Sterling Heights to work in automobile plants operated by Chrysler and Ford. The city is home to many groups of immigrants. Millions of Iraqi citizens were displaced after the U.S.-Iraq War, particularly Iraqi Christians, mm. and 30 to 50,000 resettled in Sterling Heights. Wow. Wow. Giving yeah. parts of the city the nickname Little Baghdad. Oh, well, uh, back to sea. He grew up to be very large. Six foot ten, and at the time of the murders, Whoa. he weighed almost three hundred fifty pounds. Holy shit! It makes my neck he hurt thinking about yeah. it. Wow, um, he is a giant. He I don't know about large, the part. Yeah, a large black man. Which you know, I I uh, sometimes I feel for not feel for, but like my my brother is very tall and very large, and we always worry like if a white person sees him, they're going to think oh, yeah. he's dangerous. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm just pointing it out that right. you can be a true gentle giant, but not in James Brown's case. Uh, so <laughs> now we're going to get into the timeline. Uh, what the what, Beth? On Friday, December 9th, 2011, Chiquita Madison went with her daughter, Renisha Landers, who was just days away from her 23rd birthday to shop for cars. Renisha had graduated with honors from high school, had gone on to take some college business courses, as well as worked at a variety of part-time jobs. She had a 10-month-old daughter to support as well. She was a responsible young woman doing her best to get by. She'd been in ROTC from the ninth grade on and had gone, then gone on to graduate from Westside Academy. She worked for Chrysler as an assembly line worker and before that had worked for the Department of Elections for the city of Detroit. Renisha ended up buying a shiny new Chrysler 300 on the shopping trip, and Chiquita remembers this as a happy day, and she was very proud of her daughter. The last time Chiquita saw her daughter Renisha was on December 17, 2011, when she'd gone with her to do some house hunting. Then Renisha went off to meet some friends at a bar. At 8 o'clock that evening, Renisha's friend Courtney Myers met up with her, and Renisha showed off her new birthday haircut. Mm. Courtney later said that Renisha had a very bubbly, outgoing, caring, happy person and was just very sweet and nice. Aww. Now, that evening, they spent some time together driving around at different family members' houses. At one point, she heard Renisha making plans with her cousin, Demisha Hunt. When they stopped back at Renisha's house for Renisha to change clothes, Courtney decided to stay at Renisha's house as she was tired. That was the last time she saw Renisha alive as Renisha never came home. 
Courtney spent the next few days making seemingly endless phone calls and going to various casinos, bars, and other known hangouts to try to find Renisha. She later said, quote, I rode around for hours. My stomach was in knots, unquote. She was in her parked car at her sister's house when her sister came charging out, yelling to her that two women had been <gasps> found in the trunk of a car. Oh, my God. Courtney said that she, quote, lost it. I just lost it. I couldn't breathe. I felt like I was being choked, unquote. Just four days away from her 24th birthday on December 19, 2011, the bodies of Renisha and her 24-year-old cousin, Demisha, were found inside the trunk of that brand new Chrysler 300 on Promenade Avenue in Detroit, Michigan, south of 8 Mile. The car had been backed into an empty open garage next to a vacant house and then set on fire. If you look the area up on Googleisha, it looks like it has a large chunk of abandoned lots and abandoned houses. Yeah, did you look at it I, at all? I didn't. I didn't. So it's really interesting because there'll be like a an empty lot with grass. It's it's all grassy and green, the trees yeah. everywhere. It's oh. kind of pretty. Oh. Um and then there'll be like an abandoned house mm. and then another lot and then a house somebody's obviously lived in that's all fixed up nice, you know? It's yeah. just a really interesting part of the uh, country, area. I would say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the houses are really, I mean, you know how I am with uh, architecture. I just love looking at old houses and I love these old houses. I'm like, I want one. Yeah. For a minute, for a minute. I mean, actually, 2011 is kind of a a, a significant time, I think, in American history, because that's when the economy was like really bad. We were still like in this 2008 suffering from the um, problems that developed in 2008 and 2009 from yeah. the recession. And so I remember reels on the news from that time of just news, oh, yeah. just driving by abandoned home after abandoned home in Detroit. Yeah. And it yeah. just was really, it just was sad. Um, sad. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Demisha Hunt had also been very loved by family and friends. The loss of the two cousins was especially hard on Renisha and Demisha's families, not only because, you know, they lost Renisha and Denisha, but right. in an unrelated incident six months prior, two other cousins oh, in the family no. had been found dead in a burnt out vacant home. Oh, my God. Oh, my yeah. God. That poor family. Yeah. Wow. At the time that Renisha and Demisha were found, Denise Reed, Demisha's mother, said it was enough. Quote, they're killing our children, they're killing our elderly, and they're killing our babies. And that's the truth right there, unquote. Six days later on Christmas Day, firefighters called to the scene of a house fire, found the bodies of 29-year-old Natasha Curtis and 28-year-old Vernithia McCrary, burned beyond recognition in the trunk of a burned-out 1997 Buick LeSabre that had been set on fire after being parked in the garage of an abandoned house on Lynette Street in Detroit. Natasha Curtis was also just shy of her birthday when she went missing. On December 23, 2011, Natasha left her boyfriend's place with her friend Vernithia McCrary to have a night out on the town in celebration of her 30th birthday. Now, uh, Natasha was very excited about her birthday and had posted earlier that day on Facebook, quote, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. I have so many options. I'm so blessed to be loved, unquote. Mm. That's beautiful. Her family had planned a birthday party for her and she was supposed to have been there. 
Her brother, Jansen Curtis, had been expecting her at the family party on December 24th with Natasha's children present as well. One article said she had three children, one said two, and that she was a few weeks pregnant with the third. Mm. But we don't we don't really know. Okay. But she had children. Mm. However, she never arrived. Jansen now has custody of the children who not only lost their mother, but lost her at her birthday and at Christmas. Oh, that's got to be particularly... That's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. An acquaintance of Vernethia said that she was a good mother who enjoyed playing cards. Quote, it seems like even when she was upset, she smiled. She had this big old smile from ear to ear, unquote. Vernethia's children, including a little boy described as autistic, now have to grow up without their mother. Mm. The area where the burnt car with Natasha's and Vernethia's bodies inside was found is also south of 8 Mile and looks similarly abandoned when you look it up on the Google. And this is from Minnie again. She says, I actually got to know a guy from Detroit a few months before I left Arizona for Alberta. He was an older black man and had recently moved into my apartment complex where I used to live. This was around the time of the height of the fires. And he said that he had felt forced to leave Detroit because he'd lost his job there and no longer felt safe in his home, Hmm. though he said he still loved the city. He was expressing that he wished he could go back, but he knew it wasn't going to be possible. Mm. It wasn't the same city anymore. He hadn't been able to sell his house, so he had just left, Mm. saying he hoped it would just burn and maybe he might get something for it someday. Though by that time, he said it was difficult to even get insurance money for those houses anymore. Mm. He said he was fortunate enough to have family in Arizona who were able to help him out and get him a job there. It was still frustrating for him, though, because he was an older person. He had worked his whole life to build up something for retirement, but the way things went in Detroit, he lost a lot of it, so he couldn't retire. Oh, no. He was a super nice guy and was able to keep his sense of humor about it, though. Fires just seem to be something that people from Detroit have come to accept as normal. And he would just chat away about it like he was talking about going to the grocery store. Oh, wow. He said something to the effect that you never know what life is going to throw at you, and you just have to roll with the punches. He had a super chill way about him, and I really enjoyed talking with him. If you're out there somewhere listening, my friend, I hope you are doing well. And that's Minnie. Oh, that is really sweet. Um, Also, yeah. I uh, appreciate that um story because it also helps humanize a little bit more than we, we might have done without it. Yeah. Um, just humanize the, the city facts. of De- Detroit yeah. and, and what was going right. on. So thank now yes. it is time to get into the investigation and the arrest of James C. Brown. <laughs> because of the obvious similarities to the crimes, the Homicide Task Force began investigating both incidents together. Police believe the four women had been murdered in a different location from where they were found. They were able to identify each of the women, in some cases dental records, and began to search for evidence to try to learn what had happened to them. In the process of the investigation, they discovered that three of the women had been registered on Backpage.com and with the cooperation of the owners of the site, used information from it to try to locate any people they might have recently met through the site. They also investigated various IP addresses and cell phone numbers in their search for information. Investigators sorted through at least 30 different ads or posting on at least 15 other websites as well until they finally narrowed down the pool of suspects. It took quite a bit of time to sort through the information for adequate evidence, but finally, on Tuesday, May 1st, 2012, C and an unnamed 32-year-old man were brought in for questioning by police at the homicide section of Detroit Police Headquarters in relation to the deaths. 
C was detained and the Sterling Heights home where he lived with his mom was searched while the other man was released. During the first interview with the police, C denied knowing anything about the incidents and claimed he didn't know the victims. (laughs) In a second interview on May 3rd, 2012, he admitted that he contacted and met the women. He then claimed that on both occasions he'd passed out and then found the women dead in his home. What? (laughs) Bruh. But that he didn't murder them. Huh? (laughs) Obviously. Wait a minute. (laughs) But then later, he denied that he was even at the Sterling Heights home when the women died. And the four-hour interview stopped when he asked for an attorney. What a dummy. And I'm glad he was so (laughs) stupid, because that meant that they could solve this case faster. Detectives believe that C killed the women at his home while his mother was upstairs Fuck, that is awful. And on the occasion of Natasha Curtis and Vernithia McCrary's murders, while she was prepping the holiday dinner, this motherfucker. Then while his mother was sleeping, he took the victim's cars to transport the women's bodies to the locations where they were found. Oh, my God. When questioned, C's mother surely told detectives that she never heard any fights, screams or sounds of a scuffle at the home. Police believed he smothered the victims to death by laying on top of them. Whoa. When police searched the home, they found three blood drops from Natasha Curtis in the basement where C lived. They also noticed that C had torn out a fairly large piece of carpet from his bedroom. Hmm. C claimed he removed it because he had vomited there. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Seems legit. Of just, course. You know, cut out the carpet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> C's skin cell DNA was found under the fingernails of Demisha Hunt and Renisha Landers, and a friend of Brown's told police he saw a scratch mark on Brown's lower cheek and he was wearing broken eyeglasses around the time of the murders. The homicides became known as the Backpage murders because C met the women through Backpage. Although Backpage became notorious for facilitating sex work, there were also personal ads for dating, and the mothers of the victims do not believe that their daughters were selling escort services or sex. It's likely that the women didn't tell their families about their activities and maybe kept that part of their lives private so their families wouldn't have known. But ultimately, the point is moot, and I'm so glad this is in the script. Um, (laughs) Even if they were selling escort services or sex, whether openly or or secretly, that doesn't mean that it was okay to murder them or harm them in any other way. Um, And it doesn't make them any less deserving of respect or justice than any other human being. Um, And it doesn't matter what they were on the website to to do what C did should should not have happened to them. Um, I should have saved that for my takes, but this case has sort of been reduced to the back page murders. I'm going to say, Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I Um, mean, it's called the back page murders. Right. But um, (laughs) I didn't know that until I started looking into it. I thought we were just going to talk about James Brown and, (laughs) (laughs) and it turned out to be something a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get up, uh, get up, uh, get on up, uh, get up, get uh, on up, like a machine. <laughs> yeah, oh boy. <laughs> Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, 
glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. All right, so now we're going to get into the trial. Hit it, Bev. On May 5th, 2012, C was arraigned on charges of arson and disinternment of dead bodies, as well as with moving the bodies of the women. He was not initially charged with murder because police first needed to determine where the women were killed so that charges could be filed in the correct jurisdiction. Interesting. Yes, indeed. Since the women had been murdered in pairs on two separate occasions, it was considered two cases. The medical examiners were never able to pinpoint an exact cause, I'm sorry, an exact cause of death for the women, but they said they believed they were asphyxiated by C, who was nearly seven feet tall and weighed almost 350 pounds at the time. Preliminary exams on these charges began in June of 2012. At one such hearing, Chiquita Madison, the mother of Renisha Landers, expressed her frustration at the wait for justice by shouting out at C in court, you're going to die too, you're going to die too. And uh, I can totally understand her feelings. Yeah. Uh, where is the lie? No, no lies detected. Uh, nope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sounds, it sounds appropriate. Finally, on Monday, November 26, 2012, almost a year after the murders, C was arraigned at the age of 24 24 years old. My God, what a... For killing Demisha, Renisha, Natasha, and Vernithia, as well as for the previous charges of arson, disinternment, and mutilation of dead bodies. These new charges were for first-degree murder, which would carry a life sentence if he were convicted. He pleaded not guilty to the charges. Did he forget what he said in the interrogation room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he totally did. <laughs> Justice was slow moving. At an evidentiary hearing in June of 2013, more than six months later, defense attorney Jeffrey Kojakar asked that C's statements during the police interviews be ruled illegal. Hmm. Illegal. Well, okay. Okay. Um... Okay, so C claimed that he only talked during the second interview and he lied. Ha ha, gotcha. He lied during the interview, giving what he called bullshit answers because Detroit police threatened that they were going to charge his mother, Shirley, with a crime related to the murders. Shirley was never charged with anything and Detroit police tell a different version of events. They said they told C that his mother told him to tell the truth using C's nickname Mookie. Investigators also said they learned his mother cooked food for her church and that she was a nice woman. Um, I'm going to just say this. I would not put it past police interrogators to, to threaten, lo- threaten yeah. and uh, threaten yep. the, his family. So, um, yes, yeah, I, I wouldn't either. So yeah. C also accused Sergeant Lil Drew of illegally questioning him while he was being held in a room at police headquarters. Sergeant Drew, who was not working on the case, was keeping an eye on him before he was to be transported to a second precinct cell. C claimed that Sergeant Drew asked him questions about the case, explaining that his answers would amount to hearsay and could not be used in court. But Sergeant Drew said that C was lying about that, stating, quote, I would not have said hearsay to a suspect. His affidavit is kind of funny because he says some things I would never say, unquote. Hmm. 
C also claimed in court that Sergeant Drew asked him to submit to a polygraph test. Sergeant Drew denied this too, and then reversed it on him. Like Missy Elliott? What? <laughs> My thing down, flip it and reverse it. It's your flipping up a second. Yeah. Well, probably not like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sergeant Drew said that C was asking him questions about the investigation, not the other way around. Aha. He referred to C as being confused and inquisitive. Hmm. When C asked specific questions, quote, I cut him off. It was burning him up to find out what we knew. Suspects always want to get information from you. They want to know what you know, unquote. Sergeant Drew said he agreed only to answer basic procedural questions, such as who decides on charges. He also said that he allowed C to borrow his cell phone to call his mother, but didn't allow him to talk to his brother. C testified about the call, quote, She said she wanted me to tell the truth. She's a church-going woman. She was crying, and I could hear it, unquote. Listen to your mom, C. Listen to your mom. <laughs> I know there's a song there, somewhere. <laughs> the murder trial finally started on February 6, 2014, more than two years after the murders. Prosecutors said that blood found at the murder scene, DNA evidence, and cell phone records would help prove that C killed the women. Mama said, Mama said. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> C, C told police that he had smoked marijuana with the women, had sex with some of them, and then passed out. When he woke up, they were dead. Yeah, that sounds like a legit case of adult spontaneous death syndrome, don't you think? <laughs> you know how some people just spontaneously die? <laughs> totally not his fault. No big deal. He was just smoking some pot with them. That's all. Then they just, you know, died. All four of them. Makes sense to me. Nigga. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, when you put it that way, it does sound pretty ridiculous. Doesn't it <laughs> wow. Wayne County medical examiners testified that they believed the women were asphyxiated or suffered an asphyxiation type death. Their manners of death were ruled a homicide, though a medical examiner for the defense testified that he would have ruled their manners of death indeterminate. Huh. Yes, chalk another one up to adult spontaneous death syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> A-S-D-S. Now, C admitted to putting their bodies in cars and driving them to Detroit and pouring gasoline on two of the bodies in the trunk and setting it on fire. Therese Tobin, chief trial attorney for the Macomb County Prosecutor's Office, told jurors that, quote, he did it because he enjoyed it. He did it because he got some thrill out of it. He went on with his life like nothing happened. He opened his presents on Christmas Day, unquote. Wow. If that you want to wow. sway a jury and yeah. make them pissed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't even imagine. I mean, not that I want to imagine having murdered someone, but do you think you could keep it together on Christmas morning and open presents no. like everything was normal? No, and I don't. If you'd done something like no, that? No, and I, if the <laughs> prosecutor hadn't said that, I don't know if I, I would have had that thought. Um, but that is yeah, really, really telling about. Yeah. Kind yeah. of the coldness of this individual callousness yeah exactly and um I, i'm pretty sure i i could not i'd probably be like thanks for the presence mom by the way i killed four <laughs> I people know. in the basement i just can't <laughs> shut up about this i have to tell someone yeah i have to tell somebody <laughs> but you know psychopaths be psychopaths. i was gonna say do you do you smell that i smell a psychopath 
<laughs> what is a psychopath smell yeah, like? Yeah, I can smell it. Mile away. <laughs> it smells like burning tar. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Help us, Lord. Whoa. <laughs> Uh, so yeah he was probably able to hold it together just fine he, he might not have even crazy. been thinking about it or you know it might have made him happy <laughs> Merry Christmas <laughs> I don't know oh my god that's terrible <laughs> okay so it was a very different story for Demisha Hunt's family her mother Denise Reed who was a teacher at a daycare said of the first Christmas after Demisha had been found dead that she sat with her 10 month old grandbaby to help her open presents that her now dead mother had already wrapped for her Ooh, including a stroller and some alphabet toys. Mm, that's so sad. Yeah. Cell phone records show that Renisha and Demisha had gone together to C's home in Sterling Heights on December 18th, 2011, the day before they were found in the trunk of the car in Detroit. Similar phone records show that Natasha and Vernithia had gone to C's home on December 24th, 2011, the day before they were found in the trunk of a burning car in Detroit. The phone records showed that the final calls from the victim's phones had been transmitted through a cell tower right by C's house. Got him. Got him. The, the trial lasted three weeks, but the jury only deliberated for a few hours. And on Friday, February 28th, 2014, C was found guilty on all 10 charges for which he was accused, which included first degree murder, disinternment and mutilation of a dead body and arson. Mm. Vernithia's mother, Denise Higgins, said after the verdicts, quote, we are very pleased. It was obvious this guy was guilty. The prosecution had him from day one, unquote. Mm. And on April 8th, which I think is his birthday. Uh, oh. <laughs> ah, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. C was sentenced to life in prison. He was 25 years old. That, I mean, his age is just, it's just. Happy birthday. I guess, but he's so <laughs> young. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so were the victims. It's, so, it's weird. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. just, it, uh, man. The families of the victims had wanted their chance to confront C after two years of waiting for justice. But like a scaredy little ass clown, he decided to <laughs> stay in his cell at the McComb <laughs> County Jail instead, rather than go to the courtroom and face them. Apparently, he was allowed to do that legally, though it's an unusual choice for a defendant to make. Quote, he should have gave us the common courtesy and respect, unquote, said Denise Higgins, Vernithia's mother. Mm. But the guy has no respect. Yeah. Natasha's aunt, Lisa Murdoch, said that she believed that C didn't show up because he was ashamed and that justice had been served anyway with the conviction and sentence. Yeah, they got the right guy. And um, he's going away. He's going away. Yeah. Judge James uh, Biernat Jr. twice called C nothing but a coward and said it's almost like he's getting a break with the life sentence. When he asked C's attorney, Jeff Kojakar, if he had anything to say about his client at the sentencing, Kojakar said no. At the sentencing, assistant prosecutor Therese Tobin read out a written statement from C that read, quote, I know what I'm looking at, so it doesn't matter about sentencing. I know I'm getting natural life, unquote. In true narcissistic form, he thought only of himself mm. and did not care to allow his victim's families a chance to confront him, nor did he care to even apologize for what he did. Right. Yeah, it's all about you, you giant fucking baby. <laughs> <laughs> 
fuck this guy. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I don't I don't know that he felt ashamed, like Natasha's aunt said. Mm. I think he was just afraid of facing the family. Yeah. Didn't feel like doing yeah. it. Yeah. I think the judge had it right that this guy is a coward. He chose to hide in the cell instead of risking confrontation. That kind of says it all. I think if he was ashamed, he'd at least have apologized in the letter right. that he wrote. Right. He didn't even do that. Yeah. Yeah. What a piece of basura. Now, Vernethia's mother, <laughs> Denise Higgins, was the only one of the victim's relatives who stood before the court to make a statement. Denise, who remained composed, said she couldn't convey how much pain the families were going through. She talked about Vernethia's seven-year-old daughter and three-year-old son, who is autistic, and when going to movies, still asked for his mama. Um, so just what a brave lady. It's awful she had to yeah. go through that. And yeah. um, the children as well. And so sad for those little babies um, who've had to go through life without their mama to this day. So Yeah, very um, sad. Now we're going to get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. C has tried numerous times to appeal his conviction, but in each case has been denied. 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 <laughs> <laughs> He has now exhausted all appeals in state courts and is incarcerated at Oaks Correctional Facility in Manistee, where we hope he stays forever. Yes. Forever. Forever. You're in jail. Forever. forever. Not sorry. Not sorry. Just, just suck it up. <laughs> So now we're going to get into what we think made him snap as well as our takeaways. What do you got, Beth? Well, these crimes were odd in many ways. Like all of a sudden he decides at the age of 23 that he wants to kill women. Right. And then he ramps it up almost immediately. Yes. It was days between the two murder incidents, not weeks or months. Yes. Just days. Yeah. And I, I, it makes me wonder if he'd done it before. Um, oh. But maybe not in the same way or oh. possibly just one Like he could have been escalating those whole 20 something years of his yeah. early life and nobody yeah. just nobody noticed. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Which brings me to another weird thing uh, that they were killed in pairs. Yeah. I'm thinking the women um, went to his house together for safety reasons. Right. Um you know, yeah. to have each other's backs. Right. But he was somehow able to kill them. And uh, I wonder how. Yeah. Overpowered. But he he was a big dude. Yeah. But that's two two people and it's hard to keep two people quiet uh, subdued. and subdued. So, yeah. 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 So and and we don't know enough about his early life to even really speculate on why. Right. But clearly he had a lot of anger. And it's very possible that the pervasive hopelessness in the city of Detroit was a factor. Right. And and like you said, you know, he lived in a suburb. Maybe it was predominantly white. There could have been a lot of racism. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But one thing I think is clear is that if he had not gotten caught, I'm pretty sure he would have done it again. Oh, I, so. I yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking yeah. of doing it, um, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> um, but the the um, dis, was it dismemberment that he was charged with? Um, yeah, I, I I'm assuming that's because he put them in the trunk and like bent their legs up. I mean, he didn't chop them into really pieces. I really don't know. Yeah, maybe oh, because and he setting them on fire. Them? Okay. All right, yeah. all right. I'm back. I, I don't know, now. but that doesn't really that doesn't really qualify as dismemberment. I don't think, but yeah, maybe he did do some dismembering, but I didn't read anything about that. Yeah, me neither. And then, um, you know, all the victims were um black women, and we talked about this before. How when black women are victims, or women of color are victims, or LGBTQ folks are victims, anybody marginalized or minoritized, the thing that they were doing 
right before they died or and only the bad things are what is right. reported um is like focused on right yeah. like we found out that these women were mothers one of them was in the rotc beautiful yeah. smile wonderful personalities and it i i didn't see that in it got reduced down in the to sources i yeah it was back just page, back murders. page murders which yeah. doesn't um i think isn't fair to the victims so I just wanted to no, point them out. No, I don't out. think so either. Yeah. Um, he sought them online, which I think is fucked up. Um, and yeah. Detroit. Uh, I think Detroit. It was also. Uh, I think you're right that the the maybe the mood and the sentiment was that of hopelessness within within the city, especially at this time. 2011 was yeah a rough year for a lot of people. Yeah, it was very rough, especially in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he had graduated from high school a few years earlier. You know, maybe he hadn't. You know, didn't see Figured a way out, out yet. Or way. Yeah, yeah, he used to live in his parents' basement. So and uh oh, I was gonna say you you mentioned that they. They were uh, he. They caught him pretty fast, um, yeah. And I just I don't know uh, what it was about this particular case, but I don't normally. I think he was just really dumb. <laughs> he was a dummy, and he left yeah. a trail as wide as <laughs> <laughs> as wide as Texas. Yeah, yeah, as wide as Texas. No, um, but uh, the DA, the law enforcement, like they they put all the resources to, into figuring this one out and figuring it out quickly and i'm just glad that this this murder didn't go unsolved for these four yeah. black women so yeah me too that's all i got okay now it's time to talk about how not to get murdered so okay. <laughs> if you love true crime and you don't want to die here's a tip for you This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So I was watching TikTok as I often do. Okay. And um, tip a different take on a tip we gave before about not being polite, not being nice. Uh This TikToker said she read an article where they interviewed a rapist mm. and he said that he used to go to the grocery store and would bump into women on purpose. Oh, geez. And the women who were polite and apologized for something that they didn't even do were like the the ones he would target. The target. Right. Oh, God. Yeah. So don't be polite. Don't be nice. If you get that hinky feeling, trust your gut and don't apologize. Um, and okay. try to make other people feel uncomfortable. Make them sit in the discomfort and fuck off. And that is my <laughs> that's my tip. Um, All right, <laughs> so, good one. Okay, um, now it's shout out time uh, where we shout out any content by or about any marginalized or otherized folks and any true crime goodies i just gotta say raised by ricky with ricky lake the podcast Uh i love it i love it awesome before i knew beth I knew Ricky Lake and this this white lady, I adore her. Now, uh-huh. not more than Beth, of course, but <laughs> of course. In, in this podcast, it's part like rewatch, part cultural retrospective. It's very funny. It's Ricky Lake and Kaylin Allen. He's that famous guy from the Internet where he's like doing um, duets where people are making really weird foods. And he's very Southern and very black and very um, outspoken and is just making fun of them. It's really funny. <laughs> So the two of them are on this show and they invite past guests on show clips. 
um, past producers. It's just really fun and like comforting and nostalgic. And Ricky Lake was um, she cared about equity. She cared about diversity. She cared about the planet and she introduced young people the world to subjects like they even talked about hiv at one point like they they, oh my gosh so ricky lake was before her time and it um you know it feels it feels good so if you want a little nostalgic listen by a wonderful woman and person queer person of color check out that podcast that sounds awesome yeah what do you got well i wanted to shout out Dahmer on netflix oh my god i've been seeing the promo for this what do you think yeah you are gonna love it really you are gonna love it oh my god i can't wait yeah i can't so it's it's very dark and raw Uh and disturbing Uh (laughs) you're gonna love it (laughs) go on (laughs) okay now i'm just kidding (laughs) i can't wait (laughs) yeah i think i think you'll love it awesome and then i wanted to read some recommendations from Minnie. please do Minnie said, if you want to spend a bit of time learning more about the fires in Detroit, there's a film out there called Burn that takes a close look at it. The filmmakers say this about it. In November 2008, Detroit firefighter Walter Harris died battling an arson fire in an abandoned home. When we heard the story, we asked what seemed like an obvious question. Why, in a city overrun by arson and 80,000 abandoned structures, would anyone risk his life to save an abandoned building? For two documentary filmmakers with no connection to the fire service, it was a question we couldn't let go. So there's that. that. And then she says there's another documentary on YouTube as well called Detroit on Fire, the documentary that discusses the issue in depth. The filmmaker describes the film as follows. A look at the arson vacant home problem in Detroit through the eyes of the Detroit Fire Department. Interviews and fire footage. This project began as my project final exam in a documentary film class at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. And she says it's actually pretty well done so must have been must have got an a plus on that one hey yeah you passed (laughs) um okay so just to recap that's raised by ricky lake the podcast wherever you get your podcasts um dahmer on netflix wherever you get your netflix burn where is the burn one oh maybe i'm not sure where burn is but yeah don't know you'll have to google yeah it. google it it is a is it a do- it's a film and then there yeah, is documentary. a documentary on youtube called detroit on fire the documentary oh man that's it Aww. that's it well yeah. Till next time, Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App or you can become a monthly patron through Patreon. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. Correct. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 